Well, welcome everybody to church this morning. New venue, same church, same God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. Especially if you're visiting with us this morning, a special welcome. It's great to have you with us. And uh, we hope and pray uh, that your time with us this morning will be a blessing. If you'd like to open your corner posts or your Bibles to Micah chapter 7, I'm going to read from verse 8 through to verse 20. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been going through the entire book of Micah. That's our practice, is to preach through the Bible. Um, And one of the great joys and benefits of doing that is you're hearing God's agenda rather than necessarily my own. Um, So we're dealing with the text in front of us. And this week we come to really, I think, the high point um, in many ways of the book of Micah because it talks about the glorious future hope that God has in store for his people, which I already touched on in the children's talk. So I'm going to read from verse 8 through to verse 20, and this is God's word. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. Even from Egypt to the Euphrates and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as the result of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance which lives by itself in a forest, in fertile pasturelands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in days long ago, as in the days when you came out of Egypt. I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. 
You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Let's pray. Father, what a great joy and delight it is to come to the mountain of the Lord with people all over the earth from every tribe and language and tongue to worship you, Lord Jesus Christ, as Lord. And Father, we ask now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that we would discern and hear your word to us through your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll bless us and encourage us. As our need be, Lord, rebuke us. Convict us of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. And most of all, Lord, may we know the preciousness of this promise. That you delight in showing mercy. And you are the God that hurls all our iniquities our transgressions and our sins into the depths of the sea. Lord, may we have a more profound and deeper knowledge this morning of your love for us in and through Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, in January of 2017, there was an incredibly sad incident uh, of an elderly man uh, suffering dementia who went missing in Sydney. In the midst of this oppressive heat wave, and I can still remember it, it was terrible, uh, his adult children sensed, uh, sorry, searched frantically for him for days and days in the midst of this heat wave. He was actually staying with them and was up from Tasmania. Shopkeepers said that the, uh, they clearly remember him asking for help, but before they could or would assist him, he wandered off. Uh, this was, a, if you've ever been up into Sydney, at Bondi Junction, Westfields, and it is a maze. I get lost, and I don't have dimension yet. He was eventually found in one of the stairwells three days later, and he tragically passed away. Now, I've been to this shopping centre since, and I know how confusing it is, because it's just so easy to get lost and to lose your bearings. Uh, they've even got a name for how uh, the shop, these shopping centres like this are designed. You may have heard of this on um, TV, but it's called the Gruen Transfer. And it's an architectural design strategy. Basically, it's to purposely distract you when you go into the shops from all of these different things that you enter the building for so that you end up buying other things. Uh, I think Woolies has mastered this. Uh, the more time you go into the shop and the shopping centre, the, the theory is, the more things you'll buy. For example, you go into Coles and Woolies. How many of you have ever done this? You go in just for two or three items. Uh, you come in to buy milk or maybe to pick up um, some bread and you come back with blue tack. 
and paper towels and those little cheese cutters that are on special. That and normally some ice cream. That's how the Gruen transfer works. It's designed to intentionally distract you so that you'll buy other things. The Gruen transfer though happens to us all the time, not just when we go to the shops. It can even happen to us tragically when we read our Bibles. That is, we can forget what's around us and what the author is really saying because all of these other ideas uh, are crowding out the main point of the passage. So it's really important as we come to God's Word today that we remember the context of what we're reading as well as everything that the prophet has written down leading up to what he says at this particular point. Now if you take a look at the insert on your corner post this week, you'll see that there is an overview to the entire book. Looks like this. I want to take that out at the moment and have a look. If you're online, you can look it up on your digital copy. Because what you'll see is that what we've got to keep in mind is that the book of Micah is a summary of basically a 40 or 50 year long ministry of preaching. As we saw a few weeks ago, the entire book is shaped in what theologians call a chiasm or a triangle where you try to identify where the very centre of the book is. And that section that is that what we dealt with a few weeks ago, and it's where there is the mountain of the Lord, which also looks like a triangle. That's the glorious time where Micah recorded, you know, ages before it actually happened, that the nations would stream to God's temple, that people from every nation would come to worship Israel's king. Where they would come and they would listen like, you and I are doing this morning and we would learn from his law and we would sing praises to him. What you're seeing at the very centre of that diagram was written over two and a half thousand years ago and you're experiencing it today. But on the other side of this literary mountain we can see that the book of Micah is structured in a very careful and deliberate way because each side of it mirrors or corresponds to the other. So, for instance, next to the mountain on the left, on the very top of the triangle, in chapter 3, we read about Israel's religious corruption. But then in chapter 5, and in the start of chapter 6, we learn about their deliverance. Or then just below that, on the left-hand side again, in chapter 2, we're told about their moral wickedness. Whereas on the opposite side, we hear about how in the future, they will be characterised by spiritual righteousness. And then finally, all the way back in chapter 1, we're told about how the Lord was going to destroy his people and their city. But now, in chapter 7, we learn about how he's actually going to save and he's going to restore them both. Can you see how the book of Micah uh, has been put together in a very structured and careful and deliberate way? And so that really sets the scene for what we're going to read today in the final section in chapter 7. Because in this last part, we've actually got to, to understand the last part of Micah, you've got to remember all the way back to the first part of Micah, because it's all about this great and glorious reversal. What God threatened at the beginning and took place, he's actually going to reverse at the end. And you and I get to participate in that. 
And he does it in four specific ways. First, he reverses his judgment on his people. Take a look again at verses 8 to 9. Because while in chapter 1 the Lord described himself as coming down from heaven in judgment, here in chapter 7 we learn that his judgment will not last forever. That yes, Israel will be punished for her sins, but there is going to come a day where God's love, where God's mercy is going to be wonderfully restored. Micah says in verse 8, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. Now, this is an important truth to be reminded of, isn't it? Because sometimes we can experience the Lord's discipline ourselves and think, well, that's it. There's no more hope for me. The Lord's purpose in disciplining or judging us or punishing us in that way is always to build us back up. To convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment so that we might be renewed. So that his judgment might be reversed. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator on the Bible once said, In our greatest distresses, we shall see no reason to despair of salvation if by faith we eye God as the God of our salvation, who is able to save the weakest upon their humble petition and willingly and we and willing to save the worst upon their true repentance. What does the Apostle Paul say in Timothy? Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the very worst. My minister, old minister Rob Smith, used to memorably say to us that was the only passage in the Bible he thought the Apostle Paul got wrong. It's not right, he said, that he is the worst sinners. I am. So we must never give up hope, for as David says in Psalm 30, his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Yes, God disciplines us, but he disciplines those he loves. The second great reversal that we see in this particular passage is the judgment that the Lord had enacted upon his city. If you turn back to chapter or to verse 6 of chapter 1, you'll see that Micah had warned that the city of God was going to be completely destroyed. That not one stone would be left upon another. Maybe hmm, you heard that phrase before. See, he says, therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. It's a pretty comprehensive as well as depressing picture, isn't it? And yet, cast your eyes over what Micah says in verses 11 and 12, back in chapter 7. Compare. Because there is going to come a day where that's going to be completely reversed. 
He says in verse 11, the day for building your walls will come, the day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt and to the Euphrates, and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. On the other hand, though, Micah goes on to say in verse 14 that all of those places outside the city will become a wasteland. Places like Bashan and Gilead, which were once rich and fertile, will become desolate and barren. Now, obviously, the reversal started when the Israelites first returned from exile. But things ultimately got underway when the Lord Jesus came. And all of the nations streamed to him. As we've been seeing, that's the incredible thing that you and I are experiencing this morning here at church. We are the nations all coming together to the mountain of the Lord to worship the Christ. Which is just another word for Israel's king. That's happening now. Because the city of God that Micah is referring to is not so much the one that exists, you know, in Israel. It's the one that exists in heaven. And as such, it's a universal and timeless city made up of people, not just of every nation, but of every age. Now, when you understand it like that, just think about how enormous the people of God have become. We are part of the largest religious movement in the history of the world. For under Christ, the true shepherd, we have been caught up into something that will go on into all eternity. And you see even a glimpse of that here in Hobart. I like you all have been reflecting on some of the, uh, I'll be generous, artworks at the moment around Hobart. Uh, you know, and I'm thinking, where will they be in five years' time? Yeah, probably not there. There's still witnesses of Christians that have worshipped here since settlement. God's kingdom never ends. He always has his witness. It's not contained in a building, but there will always be a people of God worshipping him. something that is often overlooked um, like failing but by God's grace it will triumph it will succeed the light will shine in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it the third area that we see God reverse his judgment with is directly related to that and that is his enemies because you see what we observe now is that so often those who do not believe in God seem so confident. They seem so strong. They scoff and they mock against the Lord. And to a degree, for a time, they seemingly get away with it. They don't experience the Lord's wrath or punishment, at least not straight away. But just as when the people of God were delivered out of Egypt, so too there's going to come a day, Micah says, where they too will be punished and destroyed. Where they will have to acknowledge that what they 
have been rejecting, in fact, has been the truth all the way along. You know, in that sense, I rejoice in Dark Mofo. I thank God for it. Because it shows the contrast between darkness and light. As Micah says in verse 16, Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will lay their hands on their mouths and their ears will become um, deaf. What happened to Satan will happen to them. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. The Lord Jesus puts it even more dramatically than Micah. He says they will call on the rocks to fall on them and they won't be able to escape death. We're often tempted to think that the church of Jesus Christ is about to go belly up. That the latest assault or false teaching to infect the church is going to be the thing that finally brings the church to its knees. But as G.K. Chesterton once wrote, Christendom has had a series of revolutions and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. See, we believe in resurrection. We believe in a saviour who defeated death and so too his church reflects that reality. Yes, we die, but the church of Jesus Christ has a way of resurrecting continually. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not, but Scott Morrison um, referred to this verse in Micah in his last speech as Prime Minister. It's a really powerful video. You can easily Google it online. But he shared this passage with the people at his own church to declare, and I think whatever you think of politics, I think this is admirable, he still trusted in Christ in the midst of defeat. I don't care what side of politics you're on, that's admirable. That's Christian. Because he understood the principle that present failures are going to be reversed. That there's going to come a time when the Lord is going to act and right every wrong. But that great and dreadful day arrives, or sorry, I should say, before that great and dreadful day arrives, so there's going to be one more great reversal that occurs. And significantly, it's where the Lord will reverse his judgment upon his judgment. Not that this will apply to absolutely everyone. No, as we've seen, those who remain God's enemies will experience his wrath. But those who turn to him now will experience his mercy and his forgiveness. Just take a look again at what Micah says in verses 18 to 19. Because it's not like anyone can look down their noses at another person in self-righteousness. Absolutely not. The only reason why anyone can stand before the Lord is because they have had their guilt removed. And can I just say, a question that I've asked everybody since I've come to Cornerstone Hobart is this. What promise in the Bible would you say summarises for you the Gospel? We should all be able to give an answer to that question. 
Even if it's just John 3.16. But if you're looking for one this morning and you want one for yourself, here it is, verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? No other God does that. You do not stay angry forever, but what's God's character like? You delight in showing mercy. That's what God delights in. That's what he loves. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and you will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Now, isn't that glorious? All of the guilt, all of the things that you look back on and you think, I wish I'd never done that. I wish I'd never said that. I'm so ashamed even today thinking back on that. God takes that sin and hurls it into the depths of the sea so it can never be recovered. That's glorious. That's what God does. That's what God does for those who trust Him. Now, what is really interesting about what Micah says here is that not only is the imagery almost identical to what we find in the book of Exodus, when the Egyptian army is miraculously defeated at the Red Sea, but Micah's own name means who is like the Lord. Who is like the Lord? Micah. Micah's using a pun to express a profound theological truth. Because when we come to Jesus, all of our guilt and all of our shame is taken away. Unfortunately, we can carry it around for years, can't we? We might have done something stupid or foolish and we can be weighed down with this enormous sense of guilt and shame, which is utterly debilitating because it's like we're carrying around this enormous psychological weight. Oh, how we need to be reminded, friends, and assured that our sins have been atoned for. That by trusting in Jesus, they have been effectively dealt with once and for all. Our guilt has been, in Jesus, removed. And that the Lord no longer counts our wrongdoing of sin against us. He has literally, or in every way, hurled all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea because in Jesus he has taken upon himself the punishment which we deserve. What a fantastic truth. Because in Christ a great exchange has taken place. He who knew no sin has become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin, his righteousness, exchanged. <coughs> All we need to do is turn to Jesus and trust in what he has done for us. It's as simple as that. And we saw an absolutely incredible example or, or illustration of that in Luke chapter 7 which was read from earlier by Ian. Here was this woman whom Luke describes as having lived a sinful life. 
God. You don't need to really go into detail to understand what that meant. She immediately goes to this incredible length of washing Jesus' feet with a jar of really expensive perfume. And not only does she use the entire jar on his feet, but she dries them with her own hair after wetting them with her own tears, and she repeatedly kisses his own feet. It's just absolutely remarkable. Sadly, rather than consider what might have motivated a woman like this to perform such an extravagant and self-effacing act of worship, all that the religious leaders who had invited Jesus to his house can think of is, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. He complete, they completely miss the spiritual significance of the event. Jesus uses the opportunity, though, doesn't he, to teach everybody a lesson. And that is, he starts by telling them a story. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. And then Jesus asks this crucial question, which of them will love him more? To which the Apostle Peter responds, I suppose, the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. And he's absolutely right. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. That's the principle. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. But those who have been forgiven little, love little. Just consider how Jesus says that he himself has been treated by those who had invited him for a meal. The woman had wet his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, but others hadn't even offered him water. The woman had not stopped kissing his feet, whereas Jesus hadn't even received a kiss on the cheek. And whereas the woman poured out perfume on Jesus on his feet, he hadn't even been given by his hosts oil to anoint his head. The contrast couldn't be any greater, could it? He who has been forgiven much, loves much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And then this really beautiful and touching moment that the Lord turns to her and assures her again about what she's received. Here's the key. He says to her the most shocking thing of all, the most glorious truth of all, your sins are forgiven. There's no purgatory. There's no extended period of, well, maybe we'll put you on trial here just to see how, you know, you go, you're forgiven. And when those who are there get upset at him, saying that he goes even further, and he says to her in front of everybody else, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. You see, that's the greatest thing we can hear and receive from God, isn't it? It's that our sins have been forgiven. That if you trust in Jesus right now, your guilt has been removed. You stand before a holy God justified. All of our iniquities, 
had been hurled into the depths of the sea. That's what we all need most from Almighty God. Have you received it from Him? If you haven't, then why not turn to Him and call on His name this morning? Turn away from sin and trust in what His Son has done by dying on the cross and rising again from the Join the great multitude of worshipping Him at His mountain. If you've already done that, can I encourage you that Jesus' words to the woman are His words to you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Be assured that you have been forgiven. You are accepted. All of your wrongdoing has been paid for and been completely done away with. And because you have been forgiven much, love much, because you've been freed from the penalty of sin, freely give. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. For in Him the greatest reversal of all has occurred. We who are lost are found. We who, are, who were dead are now alive. We who were blind now see. God in His grace and blessing has so loved us with such a strong and enduring love that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ now. Because there is no one like God. Who is like the Lord? Who pardons sin. Who forgives transgression. And gives us His peace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. You alone are the true and living God who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. And yet, in us, Lord, there is darkness. We have sinned against you in our thoughts and actions. In not just what we have done, but also in what we have left undone, what we have failed to do. We have not loved each other as we ought. Incredibly though, it was while we were still sinners that you sent Jesus to die for us. And it is by his wounds that we have been healed. We thank you for this great mercy. We praise you for this great love. And we worship you for this great act of forgiveness. Make us like the woman we read about in your word. In knowing how much we are accepted and loved. Empower us to love and worship you all the more that we may lay down our lives before you as living sacrifices. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is the greatest truth we could ever hear. Therefore, enable us to grasp but not just with our minds but deep within our hearts as well. So bless us with gospel confidence, Father, that we would walk in freedom and joy to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Amen.